This is CSAP Science and Policy Podcast, where we're bringing you the latest evidence and expertise to improve public policymaking. This week, we're proud to present the final episode in our series on science, policy, and pandemics. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Cambridge Infectious Diseases and the Cambridge Immunology Network. In this episode, Our host, Dr. Rob Doubleday, is joined by experts to learn how the research community might prepare for future pandemics. Hi, I'm Rob Doubleday, host of CSAP's Science and Policy podcast. And today, in the final episode of our season on science, policy and pandemics, we're joined by James Wood, uh, head of the Vet School at Cambridge and a professor of infectious disease dynamics and the control of diseases. Sylvia Richardson, Professor of Biostatistics, also at Cambridge, and Director of the Medical Research Council's Biostatistics Unit, and Andras Floto, who is a Professor of Respiratory Biology and Research Director of the Cambridge Centre for Lung Infections at the Papworth Hospital. You're all very welcome. Throughout today's episode, we'll be looking ahead um, and discussing what lessons can be learned from this pandemic and how the research community can help prepare for the next one. So James, could you start by telling us what we know about the the origins of of COVID-19? There are some things that we know and quite a large group of things that we don't know and actually may probably never know. So the evidence from very detailed virological analysis is that this virus almost certainly came from bat populations and the closest related viruses have been found in bat populations in China. So that's what we know. We know that the first cluster of cases occurred around Wuhan at some point around the beginning of December or, or end of November. And there, there is conflicting information that's been published on this. What we have absolutely no idea of is whether this actually emerged from animals into humans in the Wuhan seafood market, which sold much more than seafood. I think it's highly likely, unless a smoking gun is found retrospectively, which I think at this stage, months later, is extraordinarily unlikely. I don't think that we are going to know how things got going. It may well be that the emergence, and actually when we're talking about emergence, what we're talking about is widespread human-to-human transmission. It's not something happening around the human-animal interface. It's after it's got into humans. That emergence event may have been coincidental because it got into the population that were mingling around the, the Wuhan market. And it's just coincidental that they have wildlife there as well. And, and the primary event of spillover from animals to humans may have been somewhere completely different. And I don't think we're going to know that. Thinking perhaps more generally about what we know from not just this one instance, but instances of novel infectious diseases, do you think it's right? When people say that this is not a sort of natural hazard, that it's, that humans and the way we're living and the way we're interacting with nature are actually creating the conditions that make these kinds of events more likely. We have always interacted with animals and we have always been the recipients and actually probably the donors as well of infections um, from animals and to animals. What is different is the scale at which this is happening. And, and this is where I think that the human behaviour or anthropogenic drivers are critical in terms of pandemic emergence. And I think one of the most important things is how we move live animals in particular, but live animals and animal products around the world, sometimes legally, sometimes sublegally, or sometimes in just in an unregulated way. And those are key drivers. So if we are 
to learn lessons from from this pandemic, but more broadly from from sort of experience of of emergencies of novel diseases over the years. What do you think are the most important lessons to learn in terms of reducing the risk of these events happening at all? Yeah, that's a very difficult question. I think that that we need to introduce measures that allow appropriate controls to be introduced in localities and and the regulations will differ or guidance will differ between different locations because there are different challenges to be addressed in in China, Southeast Asia, parts of sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Europe as well because we mustn't you know that we must forget that emergence happens everywhere in North America too and I think that this is where we need to have a, a clear framework for trying to reduce the amount of animal trade that involves mixed species in close contact with each other um, or long distance unnecessary trade when actually if you're if you're looking at uh, moving uh, food sources around then it should be perfectly possible to move frozen meat around the world rather than thinking we've got to move live animals. So how much attention has there been in the international community to, to try and tackle these issues and try and make progress and re- reducing the likelihood of these sorts of events? Lots of different academic groups uh, and some campaigning organisations have been talking about this narrative for many years. Some from an animal welfare perspective and the, the relative balance of animal welfare versus disease emergence has tipped over the last 12 months, being one that's being driven more by preventing disease emergence rather than ensuring animal welfare. I think both are important um, in totally different ways. Uh, so, so we've known to an extent what we need to do. I think the opportunity that this pandemic brings is that we've got far more potential for international traction for necessary regulations um, and support for regulations being embedded into, into national responses, some of which will be leg- regulatory, some of which won't be, um, some of which need to be led to cultural change. And what, in terms of the kind of research you do and, and the academic world that is trying to build an understanding of the conditions and then and then the consequences of these sorts of emergencies of novel diseases, is there a lack of knowledge or, or is it just a lack of will to act? There is a lack of holistic knowledge of how infections persist in animal species, mostly, particularly wildlife and how they may, may then transmit to humans. That, that is much better understood than it was 20 years ago, but it's still not well understood. People have focused on, on a lot of these drivers. So, so many academics, and indeed you know, some quite informed policy-engaged people, including in, around Cambridge, are supporting the idea that if we characterise every infection that infects every species or group of species, that will then allow us to develop cross-reactive vaccines that protect against all likely pandemic viruses. I think given that we can't even produce vaccines in species and veterinary species that we can do experiments with against some coronaviruses, I think that, just as an example, I think the potential for us having broad cross-reactive vaccinations against all potential pandemic threats is just pie in the sky. I think that that getting a better understanding of the viruses and bacteria out there is good and helps us to think about it, but we will not have off-the-shelf vaccines that protect us against everything in the next 10 to 20 years, or probably even the next 50 years, I don't believe. From the point of view of somebody like you, James, who's sort of studying One Health, looking at the interactions between non-human animals and, and humans, do you think that there's more that can be done sort of in terms of surveillance? Is there more that's improved surveillance could could do? There is far more 
animal surveillance, that animal surveillance could contribute to our understanding of what the risks are. I think that the most important thing, which is so simple and so overlooked, is the importance of investing in primary healthcare-based surveillance all around the world in humans. The key measure that allows you to control any infectious disease better is early detection and early response. By the time we've started to have the sort of scale of transmission that we're seeing around the Wuhan market, it's too late. Thank you. And um, Andres, do you want to come in there? Just to um, reiterate what James is, is saying, the opportunities now with portable relatively cheap molecular diagnostics or sequencing that you could deploy at scale in primary care would allow you to identify new viruses immediately. And, and that would provide you an early warning system, which is scalable. And, and Andres, I mean, that's sort of, you're saying that that's possible in, in theory, but in practice, is that achievable in terms of the kind of cost and the logistics that would be required to implement that at a global scale? So there have been a number of studies that I'm aware of focused on various diseases, not necessarily viruses, but including viruses, where pen drive-sized sequencing technology has allowed whole genome sequencing of pathogens in the field. And you could imagine a scenario where you could have a flagging system immediately to identify as James says, that transition into humans of, a, of, of an animal pathogen. Thank you. I mean, Sylvia, this is a good opportunity to bring you in. We're learning that the importance and the possibility of improving surveillance, but I mean, that's going to generate lots of data. And the question is, how good are we collectively at, at collecting and, and analysing and making sense of this data? So in terms of your knowledge of the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, how, how effective have we been globally at making sense of the data that has been available? Well, I was fascinated what, by what Andres uh, just said, because I think this would, uh, for me, was been really trying to think about real-time surveillance systems and developing, you know, the, the basic uh, kind of design for real-time surveillance systems. Having such a tool you know, would be, you know, because obviously any real-time surveillance has started by some kind of diagnostic and diagnostic which can accommodate some lack of sensitivity or, or specificity so long as the characteristics are known could be taken into account in, in the design. Uh, so that, that would open many possibilities. At the moment, uh, internationally, on the health front, the data which has been uh, shared and analyzed has been very simple data. It's been testing, you know, testing effort and positive uh, tests so that you could compute, you know, positivity rate and basically death, either hospitalized death or all deaths, which would then include, you know, care homes and um, death at homes. Um, so these have been shared widely. There's been massive effort. There's WHO, there's John Hopkins, there's the world, it, our world in data. I mean, there have been really efforts of, of making these available for quick and good visualization of this data. But this is very broad brush data. And as soon as you start to drill down and look at per age group, sex, and, and you want more granularity, you don't want country, you might want to compare between cities, 
you you know you are much more geographical granularity then it's much less easy to get hold of data and that has hampered international comparisons because there's so many things which differ at the country level you know you have to be very careful not to overinterpret that and you need to drill down and have more granular data but there's been an immense cooperative effort for making this available at speed and and you know i think that's been really very useful nevertheless to try to track the different shape of the epidemic so you've talked about in in the context of covid-19 the the importance of testing data and then yes. the da- data on deaths have there been any indications that alternative sources of data have been useful? For I mean, it depends on the purpose. There are data for the purpose of trying to understand the disease course and the severity burden. And so for that type of things, ideally you'd want to follow a whole large cohort of positive cases and then follow their disease course. This has not been, cannot be set up in an emergency, but you could use clever record linkage to, to do that. And, and you could make sure that there is, for example, you could link data with the hospital admissions, then you would know about the comorbidity and things. So there's definitely, uh, in terms of trying to understand, you know, the severity, there's been other data being used. Also, hospital management data has been used a lot throughout the world. This is difficult data because it's really collected for audit purposes. Lots of missing patterns and so it's messy data and so it's pretty hard to actually give reliable conclusion at least you have to be very careful with that type of data but in terms of uh, much more granular surveillance as we were talking as James was mentioning and, and, and Andres was also exploring I think there's a lot which could still be learned from this kind of detail uh, following up some of the of the contact tracing to try to understand patterns of transmissions. Sylvia, can you tell me a little bit about the exchange of information between different levels of government? And, and once we have that, then if we, we can build a much more agile surveillance system, once you've actually understood what are the at-risk contexts, you need to scale those up and make it to you know, exchange information regionally, nationally, and internationally. For example, it's clear at the moment that we see that meat processing plants, you know, are in a, are in a context where there is clearly at risks. And this has happened in many countries. And so this knowledge needs to be shared and then, you know, operationalized so that, in fact, countries take a similar attitude to, to controlling that and can learn from, from each other. So I think that there's definitely... Um, there needs to be a fluid uh, interaction between uh, local level, which is absolutely crucial, and a national level and international and, and exchange of information. James. I would like to add that it's um, not so much meat plants, but it's plants that involve migrant workers being kept in high-density dormitory-style accommodation that are suffering from repeated outbreaks. And the the actual working environment, I think, is is not yet clearly a risk itself. And this is where exactly the sort of study you're referring to, Sylvia, I think is so important. 
Yes, no, I completely agree. I say that as just as an example, but indeed you need to try to understand the context and then you could actually do very extensive surveillance of this context as, as context at risk for, in general, any new disease development as well as you know current control of the disease. And I think the Joint Biosecurity Center, which has been created, is aiming to do that, to operationalize both national and help local control organizations. So this is, you know, this is one of their aim to actually operationalize all the scientific knowledge in terms of control. And do you think that 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 biosecurity centre is setting about the right way in terms of thinking about data and thinking about how the data can be curated and and managed in ways that are shareable and, and lessons can be appropriately drawn from that? I hope so. I think from several angles, you know, they're talking to the to community, they're talking to to scientists, to statisticians, and so on. And we've been encouraging that at the Royal, you know, at the Royal Statistical Society, the Royal Society also. So, you know, we're encouraging all this conversation, and I really hope that. Indeed, there's certainly the wish, you know, they're exploring their setup. And I think it's important that all of us contribute to make links, to encourage them to build on the scientific knowledge and also, you know, coordinate all the, the sort of data linkage and acquisition. James, did you want to come yeah, in? Yeah, I think the Joint Biosecurity Centre is a really interesting advance and it's tremendous that it's now being led by a really well-respected statistician is exactly the right sort of person to be leading this. But I think that many people in the academic community are still confused by the uh, the fact that the first director was someone straight out of the security services, I believe, from MI6. And there's still very little public information around what the purpose of that centre is and, and how it's going to work. And I think that, that data sharing and all of these things does depend on transparency of purpose and clarity. And I think that, that for those working in academia, there's, there's more work to be done there. And, and Andras, to some extent, the question is, what do we do with this increased knowledge and increased intelligence about the dynamics of, of emerging diseases? And of course, one thing is to have, you know, smarter, more effective social distancing or other kind of public health interventions. But I suppose we also hope that it means that, that therapies and vaccines might come on stream faster. Is, is that your hope how do you see the, the potential lessons learned from the current situation? I think the uh, question about what rapid, highly granular data about an outbreak could provide is to make it clear what sort of pandemic you were dealing with. And the problem, I think, with this approach was that they took the playbook, which said flu on it, and they followed the flu paradigm. And it was very clear to those people that were looking and potentially with better data, you'd identify that early, that this was clearly not flu from the very beginning. And it would allow you to be nimble and appropriate in your approach and to deal with this more like Ebola or SARS than just uh, seasonal flu or pandemic flu. In terms of treatments, I think just to re-emphasize what James said, the idea that you could mine the virome 
in any group of species that you think might be sources of infection, zoonotic infection, and somehow use that as a template to develop vaccines, I, I, I find slightly ridiculous. If you just think about the complexity of that task. So I don't think you're going to get to a situation where you will be in a position to make the vaccine any quicker, given the fact that we were at pretty record speeds from genome sequence to testing and then going into non-human primates and then starting phase one studies. I, I find it hard to shrink that down. I think early detection through population level sequencing would allow you to get a little bit of a head start. Where I think more data and more surveillance of viruses would allow you to do is to plan treatments a bit better. And I, I do feel that given the genome to structural proteome modeling that can be achieved very quickly, you could be in a position to uh, estimate or, or which of your existing viral, antivirals might work, or indeed uh, attempt to start developing antivirals that would be broad in their activity or, uh, or likely to be broad in their activity. And that would allow you potentially to have a panel of drug-like molecules that, that could already have gone in through tox at phase one and would allow you to deploy in a clinical trial quickly. I think that sort of thing is, is realistic to my mind. How far away has our experience of developing therapies for COVID-19 deviated from your kind of optimistic model of how things could work? Because, I mean, things have, I mean, it seems, obviously, nothing's fast enough, but I mean, it seems like people have been moving quite quickly into clinical trials with various various potential therapies. The paradigm that we are in at the moment is that you're effectively having to repurpose something that's already out there. The question is, is how quickly can you develop a trial system to allow you to evaluate the likely candidates, or indeed identify the likely candidates and then evaluate them quickly. And I, I have to say that a uh, national adaptive study, which is central and not agile, is not the way to do it, right? So the, the outputs from recovery were a, a couple of weeks ago, right? After, after the viruses pretty much gone in the first wave anyway. And you take the same number of people, you design the study differently, I think you could get to an answer much quicker than that. But that's a kind of study design uh, issue. I, I have to say that I think there are other approaches such as generic inhibitors of viral entry or viral binding that, again, you could imagine developing and providing more broad off-the-shelf uh, utility. So, for example, things that block ACE2 binding to the virus would, in theory, allow you to target not only this one or SARS, but potentially a few others out there as well. So, you're to, so the, the recovery trial and other major sort of things that are hitting the headlines, that's really, you're saying, all about repurposing existing drugs that are licensed for other diseases. Yeah. And obviously, that's, that's important and good that that's happening. When you're talking about more generic approaches, are those also being developed as we speak? So they're being developed, but you, you, you end up with a situation that you either have something that is already through safety, right, at, the, at the bare minimum, that you can deploy quickly in a clinical trial. If you start from scratch, then you're looking at a, a, a timeline of, of years uh, before you get that through, through development and, and safety and, and, then, and then trial evaluation. 
So, so there is a tension about moving quickly in response to a pandemic, you know, and then starting from scratch with, you know, with a blank sheet of paper and saying, right, well, I'm, I'm off. I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a drug. By the way, it'll be ten years. I wanted to add that also disease management is an area which could contribute where people could try to learn fast and they have learned fast, you know, about, for example, you know, the the coagulation and, and, you know, so I think disease thinking about very fast learning of disease management is also an area which could have potentially a a huge impact, at least uh, on, on, on severity. You know, it, it was it was no surprise to anyone that people were developing clots because that had been seen in China and then in Italy. And the idea, I think, you know, to quote somebody, you know, there was a kind of scientific hubris that we were going to ignore everything that had happened previously and start from scratch and then start to to collect data. I, I think your point about granular clinical data from around the world that was accessible would would have would have sped up thinking at least uh, and and could have could have impacted on 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 practice quicker yeah it's hard to find data about when are people advised to go to hospital between different countries and to see whether there is an impact of that uh, because I think there's definitely differences, you know, like in Hong Kong, they were told they were hospitalizing immediately. And in Japan, anybody positive at the beginning, which yeah. was, hasn't been done in, in other countries. I, I, yeah, no, I, Sylvia, I completely agree. And, and, I, and I think, you know, um, certainly the data is emerging that, you know, there's a lot of people that were sent back from hospital. You're not ill enough and then ended up dying at home. So thinking about understood sort of, I mean, it's quite sort of profound points that that we're we're reaching here, both about actually the sort of treatment given options available. So just a a, a better, a quicker, better understanding of the particular disease that is, is, you know, is confronting people. That's one issue. But then I'm still sort of trying to understand your point about how better surveillance could be used to create sort of on-the-shelf, more generic approaches that could then be repurposed. Could you just explain <laughs> again how that works? If you sample enough viruses in the species, you know, human, animal, whatever, you'll get an idea of the variation in structure of um, the viral components that we know or predict to be important drug targets. And if you do that, you've basically got a structural map of the requirements for a chemical inhibitor, which will be general as opposed to specific. I I think where the benefits of uh, of machine learning are is to be able to define the structural uh, uh, models accurately based on the genomic variation, to predict the impact of acquired mutations, so the mutability of of a protein, and to design uh, ab initio uh, chemicals that will work as inhibitors as, as a starting point. And I think I think that approach, you know, you could then develop those and potentially even go through phase one safety data, even without knowing what the virus was, without trying it on viruses, to allow that compound or that series of compounds to be on the shelf and then ready to go into phase two studies immediately. That that is possible. It's a it's an undertaking, but it's possible definitely. But as a general principle, I, I think you know it's what we've been trying to develop in Cambridge over the last 
four or five years for antibacterials. So it's not a great leap to imagine that, that, that a similar approach could be developed for antivirals. I think that that's a really exciting idea. And for me, given the complexities uh, of developing uh, single vaccines against single viruses, it's so much more feasible than the idea that we're going to have cross-reactive vaccines when we haven't even yet got a cross-reactive vaccine for influenza. And that's an easy target. So, so I think it's a really exciting idea that needs a lot more thought. And just extending that a little bit, I mean, you can define viruses by the types of chemicals that might inhibit their essential genes rather than by any phylogenetic relationship, right? So there's basically the, the, each virus will have a, a code for what types of drugs might, might work. I mean, J- J- James... What's your sense of how realistic it would be to set up a sort of surveillance or set up the mechanisms to properly understand the the range of viruses that are circulating that would feed into the sort of program Andros is talking about? So the, the, there are already um, projects that have given themselves grand names, such as the Global Virome Project, that um, proposes to just this. Whether they're taking the right scientific approach of, of trying to sequence everything that they find in, in wildlife species or, and whether, whether they actually should be uh, far better uh, taking a more targeted approach, I think is an interesting question because although it seems that there'll be a lot of funding put into this area over the next two or three years, actually this is, even on whatever scale you do this at, this is going to need substantial funding over the next uh, 10 to 20 years because it's not something you can just do once. I mean, actually these things evolve and change over time and you need to set up surveillance programs. And, and that's where I think um, that targeted work is tremendously important. But I, I'd like to bring the conversation back to the critical bit of surveillance being, and the critical bit of infrastructure that is missing globally is, is resourcing primary care, human primary care medicine properly and public health properly. That is where the greatest opportunity for pandemic control exists. And, and the, the greater reliance on high-tech solutions and uh, armies of people wearing hazmat suits invading after the event where, where pandemics have started to take off, I think is wrong because we should be investing in primary care and public health infrastructure, um, which will have all sorts of knock-on benefits for, for humankind as well. Um, and so I think there's a massive um, global benefit to be gained from it, as well as huge social benefit. We're just about out of time. So thank you all very much for joining the discussion today. It's been fascinating. And thank you, more importantly, to our listeners uh, who've joined us throughout this series on science policy and pandemics. CSAP's Science and Policy podcast will be back throughout the summer with bonus material and a special series featuring highlights from our 2020 annual conference. If you've enjoyed listening to this series, please help us spread the word. We'd appreciate it if you shared links to this first series with your friends and colleagues, and uh, you can rate us on iTunes, and thank you very much for listening. CSAP Science and Policy podcast is a production of the Centre for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. This episode of our series on science, policy, and pandemics has been produced in partnership with Cambridge Infectious Diseases and the Cambridge Immunology Network. This episode was hosted by Dr. Rob Doubleday and was produced by me, Kate McNeil. Our guests this week were Professor James Wood, Professor Sylvia Richardson, and Professor Andreas Floto. You can learn more about CSAP's work by visiting us on Twitter at CSIPOL or by visiting our website at www.csap.cam.ac.uk. If you have feedback about this episode, 
please email inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Thanks for listening.